Welcome to the Meaningful Work Matters podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Soren, founder of Eudaimonic by Design. On this podcast, we'll dive into the world of meaningful work, explore its complexities, and examine its impact on people and the organizations they're a part of. Each episode features insightful conversations with cutting-edge experts who are successfully navigating the challenges of meaningful work. We hope to offer you ideas, frameworks, and tools to unlock potential and design work that's fulfilling, impactful, and supports everyone's well-being. Subscribe or follow us now, and let's make meaningful work matter. For most of us, we spend more time working than doing just about anything else in our lives. In fact, work is so important that the United Nations has declared it to be crucial to a person's dignity, well-being, and development as a human. But that's only if work is decent. This is the work of Zainab Tom, who you're going to meet on today's episode. Zainab is a true exemplar in being able to look at positive deviance organizations that that truly deviate from the norm in virtuous ways and unpack what they're doing, deconstruct it, and try to figure out what's the blueprint of success that other companies can use. Welcome, Zainab. It's a pleasure to be able to have you. Uh, Thank you for having me, Andrew. I am Zainab Ton. I'm a uh, professor of the practice at MIT Sloan and also uh, the president of the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute. And Mm. I just came out with a new book called The Case for Good Jobs. Tell us a little bit about the book. It is fantastic, by the way, to anybody who's listening. I I just, I love this book. And I also love your first book, The Good Job Strategy, both of which have done an immense amount to inspire me. So tell us a little bit about about it. You are so kind. Thank you. Uh, So business leaders have a choice in how they run their businesses. They can either see their employees as a cost to be minimized and focus on minimizing that cost and pay them as little as possible, oftentimes market wages, invest in them as little as possible, and then consequently operate with high employee turnover, low productivity, and a vicious cycle of high turnover for productivity. Or the other approach is to see employees as human beings who can drive growth, who can drive sales, who can drive profits, reinvest in them, higher wages, more benefits, stable schedules, um, and design their work for high productivity, high contribution, high motivation, and operate with low employee turnover, high customer service, and high productivity. So both of these approaches are possible and profitable. And I called the former approach the bad job strategy and the latter approach the good job strategy in my first book. And the first book was what enables that good job strategy? Now, in the case for good jobs, I provide the why for the good job strategy. Why should an organization that may currently be operating in a vicious cycle, why should they embrace the good job strategy and how to do it? Hmm. Thank you so much. I I love the way in which you are able to take these ideas and make them so tactical and pragmatic. I think it's one of the things that you have done that is truly 
groundbreaking because yes, you've articulated a mindset around a good jobs mindset and a bad jobs mindset, but you've actually found ways of truly creating an institutional infrastructure to be able to support those things. And I'm excited to be able to spend some time with you today diving into those things. But maybe before we do, let's just take a step back. What is a good job? And what's the difference between a good job and a bad job? Yeah. And a good job can mean different things to different people, right? I mean, we all know that you know, creating a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, recognition, achievement. Uh, these are all elements of a good job and different people might weigh different things differently. Um, but at its heart, there's a minimum condition for a good job, right? And that minimum condition is that pay is high enough so that people can take control over their lives. And another minimum condition is for people to be treated like humans, not a pair of hands. And unfortunately, you know, when, when pay is so low that people are not able to meet their basic needs. So food, transportation, rent, healthcare, childcare, just basic um, daily expenses, then um, there's tremendous stress on, on people. There are tremendous health, out, negative health outcomes, mental health outcomes, physical health outcomes, cognitive functioning. Uh, low pay is equivalent to losing 13 IQ points. So, so pay is so important that, of course, high enough pay doesn't drive a good job, but absence of sufficient pay ensures that the job is not a good one. It ensures high employee turnover. And when turnover is high, then organizations end up making decisions that treats people like interchangeable parts because you don't want to empower people. You don't want to make their job very interesting. You don't want to do so many things. And then people are treated as a pair of hands versus human beings who can make decisions and who can exercise judgment. So pay hmm. is such an important part of what makes a good job. But we oftentimes don't talk about it because it seems expensive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Love the way that you've just boiled things down to really important, simple ways of thinking about being a human being, being able to pay, being paid a living wage. Um, let's just unpack those things a little bit further. I, I would assume that it's more than just compensation that makes for a good job. Um, what else? What are other? What are some of the other ingredients that are really important? So if we look at the holistic system, so we talk about meeting people's basic needs, and those basic mm -hmm. needs are pay and benefits. And pay is a two-pronged thing, right? There's the hourly wage and the number of hours, stable schedules, stable, predictable schedules so that people can have a life, career paths, right? Being able to grow in the organization to a higher paid, higher responsibility job. So seeing a future for you and safety and security. These are like basic needs. They're not drivers of motivation, but their lack of it uh, drive disengagement and turnover. And then at the higher need, when we look at the higher needs, we look at a sense of belonging, achievement, recognition, um, learning and growth and purpose. Yeah. This is what I guess Hertzberg would call his two-factor model, the kind exactly. of hygiene, hygiene exactly. factors and motivation factors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's great. So, you know, the, the things like compensation and equity and freedom are all part of those hygiene factors. And then the elements like 
motivation, the elements like meaning, like belonging are ultimately part of those motivational factors that take us to the next level. Exactly. And we include, you know, Herzberg's theory is mostly around the work design, design Mm -hmm. of the work. So there are some design work design elements and then there are some other elements like a sense of belonging that that may be not related to the work design Mm -hmm. one of the things that uh obviously we're here talking about the idea of meaningful work and the ways in which meaningful work can be a wonderful thing it can be it can it can really help us uh be able to find and connect to our own well-being to to ultimately increase our, our own health and meaningful work has this potential negative or dark side, specifically when there's an absence of decency and some of those other um, some of those other factors, especially around compensation. And so, I'm curious whether you've seen in the work that you've done, kind of the like what happens what happens when we don't focus when we build potentially jobs that are meaningful but don't focus on those decency or dignity parts of the equation. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Those oftentimes go hand in hand, but but not always, mm-hmm. uh, right? And and when 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 I say meaningful work, like I refer to Richard Hackman's definition of what makes a work meaningful. So it's task variety, being able to do a no- number of tasks, uh, the ho- doing a whole, right, rather than simple parts. So 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 being part part of a whole, and seeing that you have an effect on the customer, right? Seeing the impact mm-hmm. of your work on the customer. So when pay is so low, when there's no dignity in work, it's very difficult to design the job for meaningfulness, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. if pay is so low, that means that turnover is going to be high. And if turnover is high, then companies don't tend to provide task variety, whole, or go even bother explaining, you know, how is how, how do you affect the customer? So I see mm-hmm. those oftentimes going hand in hand. And there are situations that we have, there are companies that we work with, for example, in senior living, where the work is so meaningful um, because you're working on a job where you're taking care of elderly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and pay is very low and turnover is high. And those environments, people feel miserable because they're not able to do the work. Yeah. Some of the research that we've uncovered talks about these dark sides of deeply meaningful work. Some, the, the classic study is uh, is this study by Bunderson and Thompson called Call from the Wild, which is all about zookeepers and mm-hmm. looks at the ways in which zookeepers who really see their work as a calling. I mean, they, the, the, the animals who they who would be under their keep literally live or die based on their effort and there's a really high moral stake to their work because not only are they responsible for the for the survival of the animal but often animals that are in zoos are some of the last of their species and so if they don't do their work they're possibly responsible for the extinction of an entire species so they they are willing to put in the work that work ultimately becomes a bit of an obsessive passion the boundaries between their work and their life often tend to erode um, they are willing to put in the extra hours because they think it's so important and 
not surprisingly, they tend to get exploited. Zookeepers are actually some of the lowest paid people within within kind of comparable professions. Um, and there becomes this whole entire cycle of, of that, um, that passion and deep sense of meaning for their work actually winds up eroding their well-being. It actually, it, it, it creates a, a great deal of work regret and career regret. It, it lowers life satisfaction. It causes an immense amount of increased stress and it eventually leads to burnout. Um, and so I'm just curious whether you've, I mean, you, you talked about kind of healthcare workers or, or specifically, I guess, personal support care workers. Have you seen, have you seen any other situations where that, that kind of happens? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I work with workers in call centers, restaurants, uh, retail stores. There's not that type of attachment to, mm. um, like, like you're describing, but healthcare is where we're witness this. And we have seen the burnout. We have seen the disappointment of not being able to do a good job for the uh, for, for the resident, and we have seen how miserable that makes people feel. Tell us about um, the size of the gap between what you talk about when it comes to good work and just the reality for um, for most Americans. The gap is huge. Uh, there are so many different statistics that I could provide, but one that's I think striking and is easy to see is uh, Brookings Institution showed right before the pandemic that 53 million Americans between the ages of 18 and 64 or 65, um, that represents 44% of Americans who have jobs, work in low-wage jobs where the median pay is less than $20,000 a year. Wow. That is a striking statistic, right? Wow. So, so many people. And when people are paid that little, oftentimes they have multiple jobs, right? And when they have multiple jobs, oftentimes they can't sleep, right? Mm -hmm. They can't take care of their children. They can't, uh, if they want to have any extra hobby or they want to go to school to get an education, there's no way for them to be able to do that. And these jobs tend to be oftentimes physically very demanding jobs as well. They're just drained at the end of the day. So the gap is huge and there's an urgency to solve this problem because the future job growth is also coming from low-wage sectors. So we can't solve this problem of tens of millions of people being left behind by, well, we'll just upskill those workers, right? We'll just get them to better jobs. But the economy is generating exactly these kinds of jobs. The number one um when it comes to job growth, the number one occupation with the biggest job growth is care workers, where the median pay is less was last time I checked in 2021, less than $30,000 a year. So, mm -hmm. so we can't solve our problem by upskilling workers. We need to find a way to upskill the jobs that they have. Mm -hmm. And if we don't solve this problem, I don't see how we'll get to create a strong middle class and how we'll get to create people who have hope. And that's not a that's not a great place to be. No, absolutely. I mean, it it seems so intractable in so many ways, and especially I would imagine within fields like 
the retail fields that you would that you would describe the the social services like for example the personal support care workers um, or others in many ways those industries are based on being able to underpay people or find extremely low cost labor solutions i mean that seems in in so many ways what the business model of those organizations is actually founded on how can you how can you create a case or convince people um uh, can convince an organization that they should be paying those people longer when it seems so at odds with their business model yeah i mean the the, the first point that the my new book the case for good jobs makes is that the system with low pay and high turnover is a lot more expensive than we may think um, and there are obviously when pay is low, turnover is high, there are direct employee turnover costs. And we have seen companies turn over their entire roster in a year, some even in six, seven months, right? So over 100% employee turnover. And those costs can be significant. But then when turnover is high and high turnover goes hand in hand with attendance problems, with understaffing, then there are so many operational problems. You mentioned that I come across from this from a practical point of view. My background is operations management. I studied, you know, I started my research more than 20 years ago looking at retail supply chains. And firsthand, I saw how expensive it is for companies to underinvest in their workers because uh, in retail stores, for example, that underinvestment leads to products that are not in the right place and companies experiencing stockouts and lost sales, huge, you know, lost sales that come from employees not being able to do a good job. Or there are additional costs, shrink costs, mistakes, all of that that costs money to companies. So so one of the points of this book is that operating with high turnover is a lot more expensive than you may think. And then you say, how do you make the case? Well, I don't need to make it because there are companies that are thriving out there Mm. who are winning with their customers and they are doing so because they have created a good job system. So um, for for my first book, I studied low-cost retailers that were operating differently. And these low-cost retailers are Costco one of the world's largest retailers, Trader Joe's. Many of uh, people listening to this from the United States might be uh, familiar with Trader Joe's. Quick Trip, a convenience store chain with gas stations, and in Spain, a supermarket chain called Mercadona. These companies are large. These companies focus on providing their customers the lowest prices, and they provide good jobs. Right. Wow. And they pay their employees a lot more than their competitors do. Why is that? Well, because their leaders have concluded that they don't want to be the biggest. They want to be the best. Right. They want to mm-hmm. be the best in the eyes of their customers. They want to constantly improve value for their customers. Well, if you are in a customer facing industry and you want to be the best for your customers, can you do that? If you have a frontline team that's understaffed, that's making so little money that they can't focus on the job, that can't be empowered because turnover is so high. So for these companies, Andrew, for their leaders, it's so obvious that once you're customer-centric, once you want to win with your customers, you have to be frontline-centric. Jim Sinidal, the founder of Costco, uh, comes to my class every year. And every year I ask him, how from the very first store that you opened, you are paying almost double the pay uh, of, of your competitors. And 
And he said to my students, he said, look, 70 cents of every dollar we spend to run our company goes to people. Wow. If you don't do that well, you're going to screw up your company pretty badly. He has Hmm. such high conviction that this is a people business and therefore Mm -hmm. you must have the best people and you must set them up for success. Um, I love I love the way in which you divide your case into the financial case, the competitive case, and the moral case. And you don't just leave it at the one. I feel like many people who enter this conversation only start and stop with the moral case. We need to we need to be able to treat human beings as human beings. Um, but I love the way that you have um, have have truly created a true playbook, a, a true, a true case for support. That's all about return on investment when it means when it comes to investing in the human beings who you're working with. One thing I would say is during the last six, seven years through the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, we work with over two dozen companies. And every time we do a workshop with companies, um, we do lots of things, but part of what we do is we present them their own data. And we present them their own data on employee turnover. We present them their own data on what percentage of their full-time employees, not all, but full-time employees are not making a living wage. And when we present those data, there's oftentimes silence in the room. Hmm. You mentioned the ethical, you know, the moral case. No executive I've met so far is proud of having a lot of people who are not making ends meet. Like on the ethical side, I think most people would like to do better. They just don't think they can afford to. Um, and what we help them see is you can afford to do it. It's not just about raising pay because you also have to change the job so that it's higher productivity, higher contribution. That's how you afford the higher pay. Um, mm-hmm. Because most of these industries are, you know, they have very small profit margins and labor costs represent a huge portion of their overall costs. So you you have to change lots of things, um, but that ethical case always appeals to people. We ju- we need to get them to the financial and competitive case um, mm-hmm. so that they can they can make real change. I want to I want to dive further into this question of the systems challenge of a good job strategy. Um, first of all, what do you mean by what do you mean by systems in this context? Yeah, so the good job strategy is a combination of both investing in people. And designing their work for high contribution, high productivity through four choices that I describe in detail in the first book, and I get to it in the second book as well. But at at, at its heart, it's about designing the work for high productivity, high contribution. Now, when you look at the work that frontline employees do, that work is driven by decisions that are made by so many functions in an organization that have nothing to do with frontline work. Mm -hmm. For example, in a restaurant chain, uh, the work that frontline employees do is dictated by decisions made at the strategic level. Do we offer takeout? Do we offer, um, how do we do with our digital? Um, What is going to be our menu, right? Are are we going to have a lot of products in the menu or fewer products in the menu. All of these things affect the work that frontline employees do. Logistics, deliveries, suppliers, because 
they bring the products into the restaurant. So if the delivery drivers are always late or the supplies are missing, then the front lines can't be, they can't have predictable work. They can't have productive work. So decisions made by so many functions from supply chain, logistics, sourcing to um, strategy, marketing, merchandising, all of these decisions affect the work that frontline employees do. As a result, they have to start making decisions differently to be able to set their employees up for success. So we need mm-hmm. a systems approach where all the functions that affect frontline work and workers need to start thinking differently. Hmm. Now, you've talked about the fact that this isn't just theoretical. You've been able to work with a couple dozen companies on trying to figure out how to do this. What are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way in terms of what works and also what does not work in terms of trying to get that whole entire system moving in a good job strategy direction? Yeah. And first, maybe I'll mention the outcomes that this strategy generated for companies that made the change recently. And the companies that I talk about in the book that made a change, they went from that vicious cycle to a a virtuous cycle of high Mm -hmm. performance. Um, They have all made huge improvements to employee turnover, to productivity, and to customer satisfaction and sales. And Mm -hmm. huge improvements. Um, For example, Quest Diagnostics adopted this in their call centers and they were able to reduce employee turnover by more than 50% within 18 months. Sam's Club, a huge retail chain with 100,000 employees, they were able to reduce employee turnover by more than 25%. So, so big improvements in turnover at Sam's Club. Previously, they could improve efficiency one or two percent. They improved it by 20%, right? So, wow. so huge. And then they started meeting with their customers. So one is like this really works when it's adopted and it and it always has those same outcomes lower employee turnover higher productivity higher customer satisfaction and sales now um i guess you asked about what gets in the way and what are some um uh what gets in the way in many organizations of getting there is those types of outcomes require a system change system change requires imagination right hmm. imagination because you can't just think about raising pay. You can't just thinking about one or two things. You have to think in systems. But many organizations are used to make decisions in silos, looking at each individual thing and say, oh, if I raise pay this much, what is the return on that investment, right? So that type of thinking is a barrier uh, to change. Mm-hmm. What did these companies do that were successful? How did they overcome that barrier? They said, look, Our starting point is customers. We want to win with our customers. To be able to win with our customers, we have to execute operationally. To be able to execute operationally, we have to create a strong team. We have to reduce turnover. To be able to reduce turnover, we have to raise pay. Like that logic was, Mm -hmm. and then what else do we need to do to make that work, right? Because Mm -hmm. company leaders are not scientists. They, They have the agency to make a difference uh, in in the outcome, so so that is the um, that is the first barrier, and how companies overcame the barrier. Um, the other barrier is, and the, the, the um, how to overcome it is very similar to the first one. The other barrier is in so many companies they see the value, right? They they see the value from a good job system, and a lot of people want to do it, but then there are so many other initiatives. There are so many other things 
that seem easier to do, that seem faster to do, and by the way, that have more legitimacy in mm-hmm. the eyes of the board or in the eyes of investors, like technology investments, M&A, those types of activities are faster, easier, um, and they have more legitimacy. So, and, and the playbook for the good job strategy is harder than the playbook for the bad job strategy. So, so lack of prioritization is uh, and lack of alignment of, of of leaders in the organization is a second large barrier. And again, in the companies that were able to adopt this change, because their starting point was customers and competitive, they were able to overcome that. This became like, this is how we win. And if we don't do this, that was a real urgency. If we don't do this, we may not be around in the next 10 years. So mm-hmm. they, have a re- they had a real sense of urgency. Um, the third, and I think the biggest barrier um, to adopting this is belief in people. So lack of belief in people um, and real belief in people. So in, in so many organizations that operate with high turnover, leaders have seen their employees not show up on time, constantly have attendance problems. They can't focus on the job. They make mistakes. They don't treat the customers well. And that's because of that environment of low pay and the vicious cycle of poverty, multiple jobs, the system that those employees are in. But instead of recognizing that that's a system problem, the tendency is to say, to attribute that to the person saying that, you know, our people are, they're not very hardworking. They're not very smart. They're not very competent. Then why would I, why would I trust them? Why would I create a system uh, where in that system I have to empower them to make decisions? So lack of belief is a huge barrier. Um, I don't know if you read about Doug McGregor's theory X and theory Y managers, right? This Tell is us about it. X managers. But the ones who did make the change, uh, they believed in people. And the ones who started with good jobs from the beginning, their leaders believed in people. I remember meeting um, Isadore Sharp, who founded Four Seasons. Um, and I asked them, you know, you have hotels all over the world, right? All over the world. And you trust the frontline employees who are, you know, at, at work, working at the restaurant, working in housekeeping. You trust them to make decisions on behalf of Four Seasons. How do you trust them? And then he looked at me and he said, have you ever met a person who doesn't want to succeed? See, his mindset is people want to succeed. I just need to create the conditions for them to be able to do that. So I will hire the right people. I will train them well. I will set them up for success. Leaders like Isadore Sharp, Costco's founder, uh, Jim Sinegal, uh, Trader Joe, you know, all of these companies that I mentioned, their mindset is we believe in people. You change that mindset. You know, I don't know how to change that mindset, but here is the best I could do for you. One of them is in the book, I talk about the same workers having very different outcomes under two different systems, right? So so it is not the workers, but it's the system that generates that type of output. So you, reading about case studies like that might, might, might help. One recommendation that I give to my students and we, we we tell the companies that we work with is spend time in the front lines. Mm. I tell my students, get a part-time job while you're at MIT Sloan, work at a restaurant or a retail store or a convenience store, some some place so that you can have empathy for people you will be serving 
and also understand how the decisions that are made make the job very difficult for uh, frontline workers. So one way to do it is probably to spend as much time as possible with frontline workers and 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 talk to them, watch them, observe them doing their work and understand that they're pretty competent people. They're just not set up in a great system. Hmm. It's uh it's so it's so interesting to be able to hear you talk about these the positive deviants, right? Of course, on any distribution curve, you have you have people who are just extraordinary examples of what getting it right looks like. And you have people on the opposite extreme, and then you have lots of people in the middle. It sounds like a lot of your approach has been looking at those positive deviants, places like Costco, places like Trader's Joe, um, being able to say, hey, what are those folks doing right? And how can we shift more towards those positive deviants? Um, have you found that strategy to be a, a useful strategy in terms of shifting people's perceptions? Yeah, I mean, there are technical things with work design and operations that I won't get into. But at a high level, I think this communicating that, you know, these companies, what they do really well is they focus on creating real value for the customer. And they focus on always improving that value. And once you make that your focus, not growth, not being the biggest, but being really the best and focusing on creating real value for the customer, then of course you become frontline centric because it's obvious that you have to set up your frontlines for success. You have to pay them well so they stay with you so they can focus on the job. So a, a high level lesson is uh, that I've learned from these positive deviants is focus on the customer, improving real value for the customer and 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 have discipline, like have discipline in in, in creating that value, which is easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing we talked about is you know belief in people, which is which is huge. And the third thing, which we didn't talk so much about, is you know these companies have made integrity a habit. They always do the right thing. I had a few years ago Trisha Griffith, who is the CEO of Progressive come to my class and I showed the video to my students. And Trisha Griffith talked about how during the pandemic, the first few months of the pandemic during lockdowns, Progressive made too much money because people were not driving anymore. So they're not getting into accidents. So as an insurance company, like you, you're making a lot more money. And she said it was too much. So we did a bunch of analyses and we gave back a billion dollars to our customers because wow. that was the right thing to do. And so, and imagine when you're working in an organization like this, that does the right thing. That's a great motivator. We all want to do the right thing. And when our organization enables us to to do that, how wonderful. What an inspiring story. If um, If you were talking to somebody who's listening to this podcast, who wanted to take a step in the direction in their organization. Um, what would be the first thing that you'd recommend somebody to do who wanted to think about implementing a good job strategy within their organization? No, the first step is always awareness, right? And the first step is how can you make the status quo unacceptable in your organization? And you can make the status quo unacceptable by quantifying its cost. But what we find works really well is to make the status quo unacceptable competitively, to say, look, 
if we stay with the status quo, we're not going to be able to win with our customers. We're not going to be able to adapt to changes and we may not be around in 10 years. So, so find ways to make the status quo unacceptable competitively and ethically too, to say, hmm. look, we need to do this competitively and it's the right thing to do. Have you seen people lower down in organizations be able to do that? I mean, it sounds like something that would be far easier to do if you're closer to the top than if you're closer to the bottom. Yeah, it is really difficult to do this lower down uh, because of the systems change that's required, because so many functions in the organization affect the work that front lines do. Um, unless there's alignment in senior leadership of those functions, that we must make this change and we must be frontline centric and customer centric. It will be very difficult to do this um, from the front lines. It sounds like in some ways that in and of itself is a bit of a talent imperative for organizations, knowing that you'll lose talent, you'll lose talent if you don't ultimately shift the way that you're thinking about the possibilities and potential of your talent. Yeah, could be. Any last thoughts or words of advice that you'd give to anyone listening to this podcast? Well, maybe one last thing I would say is when we talk to leaders of companies that have recently adopted the good job strategy, the change has been really meaningful for the leaders, right? Apart from winning, of course, you know, all these leaders care about their reputation and how they look in the eyes of others and, and they want to win with their customers. They want to have achieve high profitability and that success means a lot to them. But apart from that, doing that and at the same time, improving the lives of thousands, tens of thousands, in the case of Sam's Club, almost 100,000 workers, um, has been really meaningful for the leaders who did this. So it's the smart thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And, and it is possible. It's doable. It's profitable. And it's so meaningful. Zainab Don, thank you so much for your time today and for helping us understand the good work strategy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I enjoy talking. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Meaningful Work Matters. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And if this episode resonated with you, please take a moment to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us make this podcast better and reach more listeners. You can connect with me, Andrew Soren, on LinkedIn, or visit www.eubd.ca to learn more about eudaimonic by design. Finally, if what you heard today spoke to you, tell your colleagues and people in your community about our podcast. We really appreciate your support in making meaningful work matter. See you next time.